Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I don't think people are taking time off work to hit this. But... <laughs> I, uh, you sent me some video of you dancing around the kitchen. It was amazing. <laughs> Music any white drunk college kid can dance to. I'll just stick with the AI stuff. That's yeah. Rowan said that, not me. My math teacher, like, she doesn't explain it that well well that's the hallucination right that's like ai hallucination we have lives too <laughs> mother shipton's cave rich haddam is coming jim harold is coming i'm doing a lot of laughing is it mm-hmm. astonishing legends would like to thank mint mobile wild grain squarespace our contributors at patreon.com and you our listeners for making tonight's show possible In August of 1901, two women decided to visit the Palace of Versailles just a few miles west of Paris, a stunning royal residence that was once the ultimate symbol of the French monarchy, especially during the time of Louis XIV. The visiting women confessed that they were not very familiar with French history when they went, but that didn't stop the palace grounds from teaching them a history lesson of its own. During their time there, they bore witness to a variety of characters in strange dress, as well as buildings, structures, and even anachronistic farm tools that were long since gone. It was as if they were suddenly transported back in time. They may have even crossed paths with an apparition of the queen herself, Marie Antoinette. Charlotte Ann Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain could hardly understand what they were experiencing that summer of 1901. Only over time did they realize things were not what they had seen during their visit. They spent years researching the history of Versailles after that, even returning for more visits in an effort to understand the uncanny events that had unfolded before their eyes. In some cases, they were ridiculed for it. But to this day, the Moberly-Jourdain incident is an enduring legend that apparently, much like Marie Antoinette, refuses to die. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Richard Haddam. Seated on the steps was a man with a heavy black cloak and wearing a slouch hat. At that moment, the eerie feeling which had begun in the garden culminated in a definite impression of something uncanny and fear-inspiring. Eleanor Jourdain from An Adventure, 1911. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on the Ghosts of Versailles. We're back. Are you sure Forrest won't be mad that I said that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. I'm, I'm sure that he won't be mad. Also, I didn't tell him. So, uh, but, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's smart. don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, it's all set now. Well, hey, what if I wanted to say it? Well, you can say it in part two, Marie. I want her to say it in part two. That way he's mad at both of us. And okay, perfect. I okay. did. And I've been working on my forest. That's what you should do. You should do a forest impression. I'd like to hear that, actually. On my forest uh-huh. impression uh-huh. of Owen Wilson. Oh, right. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, first things first, welcome to 2024. I cannot believe we're here, especially considering Forrest and I started Astonishing Legends 10 years ago in 2014. We're not quite 10 yet, but we will be in October. That is insane. And you guys hit a recent milestone. Did you guys really get 100 million downloads? Yeah, um, we did. We just hit that. And that's just since we've been with Audio Boom, who we've been with a long time, but we were actually with another company for a year or two before that. So it's probably a little bit more than that. Although I have to say, being totally honest, in the early days, metrics for podcasts were horrible. So 
I feel like it's probably a little bit exaggerated, but everyone's using the same bar, so uh, who cares? Take the win. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say it was actually a lot more. It was like two hundred million. No, no, no. It would it would not be more. It's it's probably less. Yeah, okay. but it's you know what? We'll take what we can get. Uh, yeah, we we actually had no idea if this was going to last like six months or even a year, and here we are, ten years later. I I, I can't believe it. Really, it's funny because when I think about um, my son. You know, when we started, I mean, he was five and he's uh, now oh he's getting his learner's permit. So that's crazy. Oh, too. my God. So uh, a big thank you to all of our listeners, both new and old. Uh, some of you have been with us from the jump, and that's truly astonishing. We heard from you on Twitter when we announced that we had gotten to 100 million. And there were a lot of Twitter handles. who were like, I've been listening since day one. And I recognize I, it's crazy how many of the Twitter handles I recognize or the other uh, people on the Facebook group and everything. So I just want to say for people who have stuck with us that long, that's really great. I mean, I'm actually falling out of touch with my own family. So the fact that you guys are around is that's good. Yeah, I'm one of those people. I haven't been listening listening since day one, but I, I have been listening since the first time I was on. And um, that's when the show got good. So that's kind of where I started. <laughs> I know there's ones that you skip, Rich. I know there there are. You, you, yeah, the you, ones you've that said I'm not as on. much. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know that I listen all the time in case you mention me. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> I've been listening for a while, but I can't believe it's been 10 years. That is truly phenomenal. But where is yeah. Forrest anyways? Well, he's taken a break to take care of some stuff. He wanted me to assure everyone that everything is fine, which I'll personally confirm. He says hello, and he will be back on our next topic. Yeah. No, he's doing good. He's doing good. <clears throat> Actually, Forrest, that's okay that we talk about you, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. He's right here. Yeah. He's fine. It's cool. Even though it does sound fishy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's on secret assignment somewhere. You know, digging up some ghosts or some bodies or something. Just know Ooh, it. Yeah. Well, we'll never know. He's a very secretive man. Yeah. Well, whatever the case, I do know that he and I both want to thank you, Rich Emery, for standing in right now. We really appreciate you uh, coming in to do the heavy lifting. It's much appreciated. So thanks for making yourselves available. Oh, absolutely. Although I didn't know there'd be any lifting. I thought <laughs> I could just sit here. Well, in other very quick news, since we mentioned that we overhauled the store, stuff has been moving out. Here's some interesting market research. The so-called face-melting mugs that were in the seconds and mistakes section have sold out in all but one color. Now, I find this fascinating because I think there was over 100 of them in four colors. Three of them have sold out, and we have 74 left in the one color that apparently <laughs> no one wanted. So, um, yeah. What was the color nobody wanted? We had green, it was like a lime green, orange, navy blue, and black, and we still have 74 orange ones. And it's the old logo, too, by the way. I'll take an orange. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm not washing any of my dishes anyway, so that's good. I need somewhere to store my spare change. Yeah, there you go. It's a good thing for that. Well, you can get the orange face-melting mug still for $4 plus shipping and handling, but caveat mTOR, read the description real good. There are some other seconds and mistakes floating around pretty cheap in the store too, and we've also discounted a bunch of other stuff. So if you're thinking of getting something, now's the time to visit astonishinglegends.com and click on shop either at the top or the bottom of our homepage. You can find all that stuff under AL Apparel and Gear. All right, just quick, before we dive in, I do want to reintroduce you guys to our audience for people that haven't met you or heard you before. I know with you, Rich, that might be a long shot. Marie, you have not been on the show since episode 100. This is 275, Mm. so that's been a minute. That was Arcapalooza, which had all our ARC researchers, the Astonishing Research Corps researchers, were on telling stories. 
you came on that show, right? I was on that show, and it feels like it was just a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, oh my yeah, again, thank you yeah. for making me come on this and making me feel old. <laughs> Who doesn't love that in the new year? Well, that's how we crossed paths in the first place, right? It was when you came on to be a researcher. Like, how did you first reach out to us? Because I don't even remember that. Well, I believe I had just gotten fired from a job, if memory serves. And we're (laughs) we're just talking amongst us friends here. Yeah, I had just gotten canned from a job, you know, while trying to find other work. I was trying to find something to feel better and, you know, fill my time. And I'd been listening to you guys. And it was so early on that if you went on Patreon and gave you guys, I think it was 25 bucks, you would get all this access, you know, behind the curtain access and could become part of their research team if you wanted to and read their notes. Um, and I was like, yeah, that sounds good. And, you know, I had been listening to the last episode I had heard you guys were talking about Polybius. Polybius, the, the video Polybius, game. Yes, sorry. Yes, yes. Polybius, yes. And you guys talked about rasterized images for 45 minutes or something. And I was like, here's my people. That. Mm, mm, yeah. That's yes, good. I remember we this were clearly now. having so much fun. And um, so I got on and then Tess hooked me up and then it just kind of went from there. And it was like all of a sudden, you know, finding a love of research and, and looking into all the weird stuff that, you know, had been so enjoyable. And in the past I got to actually do something with. So I know you might not want to say what your day job is, but you're like you technically you're kind of a forensic investigator, aren't you? Oh, I wouldn't go that far. But yeah, no, I'm no, I mean, <laughs> I, I, the funny thing is ever since, you know, starting the research and, and working with you guys on the podcast and doing this type of stuff, I've become more employable, you know, not just uh-huh. because I'm I'm more pleasant to be around, as my bosses would say, but it's you find out all, all these skills that you can kind of use on your day job and looking into stuff and understanding stuff. And so it's it's been kind of a win-win. I wouldn't say, you know, I'm 100% more employable, but, you know, I'm working my way back. <laughs> but in the meanwhile, you have yes. started your own podcast, Whatever Remains. It's had three seasons now, right? Three and seasons. And each season is about a particular topic. My first season was about the supposed sonic attack in Cuba. Yes. Another season was Denver International Airport and the conspiracy theories and where they started from. Had a couple standalone episodes, one on the song The Irish Rover, the origins and uh, behind that. And then we're halfway, I keep saying we when it's really me, but if I say we, it sounds like a more professional, more professional yeah. show. Um, <laughs> halfway through the Circleville letter writer stories. And I've taken a pretty long hiatus. Okay. Yeah, a very long hiatus. However, we still have the second part of that coming up, which is the trial um, and the subsequent incarceration of, of the main subject and things really get interesting there. So I'm getting ready to pick it back up. Yeah. And you got tapped out by 48 hours to go on 48 hours and talk about circles. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah that's pretty cool. Was, that was my big 15 minutes. That was, um, that was kind of a trip, like right in the middle of COVID, you know, I went and kind of sat in this, in this large ballroom and had stuff all set up around me and was interviewed about the, about the subject. And, was one of their, I'm air quoting this heavily, experts. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And um, I don't know if it was something I'd want to do every day, but it was it was fun. And I had a good time with it. Awesome. And and then uh, lastly, you are also the co-host of a show with our good friend and also a researcher for the research group, Dr. Chris Cogswell, right? Yes. The super evil genius that is Dr. Chris Cogswell. Yeah. A mad scientist podcast. Been on a long time. Yes. We've actually taken a little bit of a hiatus there too within the last couple of months 
just because his side hustle besides the podcast has actually started to take off. I can't say anything about it because I even I'm probably under NDA, but he's doing some really interesting, important stuff. Super proud of him. And I'm going to be excited to get back to the podcast whenever he's ready and the world stops need saving. All right. And then our other esteemed stand-in co-host today, Mr. Richard Haddam. You've been on the show a lot. If, if folks have been listening regularly, they probably met you before. But uh, what are you up to these days after that long writer's strike? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what they say, when Hollywood closes a door, it closes it right in your face. <laughs> No, no, wait, they say it opens a window. Oh, um, is that what it is? Yeah, no, things have been going well. Well, you know, you know about my secret project, so. Yes, I do. I, yeah, I might know something about that. We we talked about it a little bit on the Christmas show there. Uh, they were, yeah. yeah. You weren't present, but we did, we did mention you towards the end of the show there. You guys have been so great to allow me on your podcast, and we've been talking for years about me doing a podcast. And so finally, in 2023, kind of the idea sort of gelled. So it's going to premiere in a couple of months in March, and it's a paranormal podcast, but I've got to say, and I think you would agree, Scott, this is not like any other paranormal podcast I've ever heard. It's unlike any podcast I've heard, period, frankly. Uh, so <laughs> having uh, been privy to the scripts, I uh, greatly enjoyed it. I, it was a page turner. I couldn't put it down. So, All right, great. Uh, yeah, so it's coming up, um, and there will be more information coming soon. Excellent. Well, I just want to thank both you guys for coming in and helping us out right now while uh, Forrest is indisposed for a little bit. He's going to be back on our next topic, but we both appreciate you uh, standing in for him during this time. As if anyone Absolutely. could ever, but yes. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's dive down into this. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm really glad. I feel like I got lucky on this topic, which you guys chose before I knew about it, but this is one of my favorite things. This, um, can I just sort of like say kind of what the general phenomenon is? Yeah, yeah, totally. This is a time slip case. Yeah. Time slips are so intriguing to me because they feel like they can happen to anyone and it doesn't sound quite as scary as alien abduction. Right. And really anything to do with time or anything that seems to imply that time doesn't work the way we think it does, which is just we travel forward and that's it. That stuff fascinates me. And, and to me, that's where the real mysteries of our existence come in. Because when time doesn't line up, either through precognition or through a time slip, it really kind of just takes reality, tosses it up into the air like a, a deck of cards. And now you're left sorting through the wreckage. Like, what in the world is going on here? Do you want to uh, tell what a time slip is? Yeah, I think people have heard about this. I One of the cases that I remember, and I do want to talk about if I can find it in part two, is there's a story about this that I think is a specific story, not just vague urban legend stuff about Gettysburg, about someone going to Gettysburg and hearing like the battle or a cavalry. That might also be another story that uh, Forrest and I've talked about too, that I think took place overseas too in the UK, where somebody was at a famous battleground and they could hear horses running on the other side of the hedges where there wasn't anything. Those are kind of time slips. There's another story that we've mentioned on the show before. I know we mentioned on a junk tour when we had um, our friend Gled on, who lives across the pond, about this tunnel that was being built under the Thames River. And people had said that they would go through the tunnel during the construction and come out on the other side and it would be a different time period. Oh and then, God. yeah, and then they would come back in. So that's another one. And you know, some of those are like a little bit urban legendy, and there's not a lot of details around them. But this one's different. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of research. 
And the other thing that I can say about this is I'm pretty sure, I don't know if it was year one, but maybe year two of the show, this was one that hit our list. It hit our story folder, the fabled story folder. We're like, we have got to do this Versailles story. And we just never got around to it. So it's nice that we're finally getting a chance to take a look at it. Ah, the fabled story folder. Yeah, there's now three of them. One of them has over 1,100 leads in it. The other one has like a 300. Yeah, we're still doing it. But like, they're not all winners, obviously. (laughs) It's more of a fable tome. Yeah, exactly. One of the earliest time slips I'd ever read about was in this book called The Ghostly Register. And it talks about this guy who, it takes place in New Mexico, and he was way out in the back of beyond. And I love this detail. He was cutting Christmas trees. So he literally, just with his truck driving out to a remote area, filling his truck with cut trees and bringing them back into town. This is in northern New Mexico. And he was out there late. His plan was to camp out, sleep over, and then head back the next morning. And during the night, he heard in increasingly loud tones the sound of a wagon train approaching his campsite. He could hear the horses. He could hear the voices. He could hear creaking wood of the wagons. He could hear the wagon wheels. He could hear the clanking of pots and pans. It got closer and closer. It passed over him. It passed through him. And then it receded into the distance. That's the best thing I've ever heard. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. But he never saw anything. He just heard it, right? He never saw anything. He only heard it. And in fact, that particular story, I was talking about it. You and I have talked about that show that I did, Miracles, about 20 years ago with Skeet Ulrich. We did one episode that was basically a time slip episode. I was telling that story in the writer's room and everyone got really excited. And we we just couldn't get over the notion that you could be somewhere and suddenly sort of be overcome by the past in a wave that would that would rise up and consume you and then recede. There was something about that that just struck everyone as so eerie and yet kind of so magical. So we we did a whole episode about, you know, it took place, there was the Civil War storyline and the modern day storyline, and they kept intertwining. And people from each era were aware that something weird was happening and were interpreting it in totally different ways. What's so cool about that and like about this story is its influence was very popular when it was released, but its influence on future writers, even time slip stories like the one that you worked on. Like, again, it influenced my favorite book, The Haunting of Hill House. So Shirley Jackson cites this as one of the major um, sort of backstories that um, gave her sort of the creative ideas around Hill House. All right, Rich, are you ready to help me out here? Yep, that's what I'm here for, man. Okay, excellent. So uh, let me ask you a question. Did you make any New Year's resolutions this year? You don't really strike me as a resolution guy, but I wanted to Oh, ask God, you. no. No, no. no. Why, why, why set yourself up for failure? <laughs> well, I did make a few. For whatever reason, I do find it easier to try and uh, take a new step at the beginning of the new year. And sometimes it works out for me, and sometimes it doesn't. Like uh, right now, I'm doing a dry January, but but that's kind of a low bar because that's only a couple of weeks. And then uh, uh, I'm also trying to spend less money because I got uh, more going out than coming in, I've I've realized. I'm going to do dried February because it's a shorter month. Okay. (laughs) It's a little bit more realistic. And really, I'm going to try a dry February first. 
Yeah, I have friends who are doing damp, which I guess means they're drinking just on the weekends. But oh, so all right, all right, I like it, I yeah. like it. <laughs> well, apparently, on average, it takes about thirty days for a person to break their New Year's resolution. So, if you like me and saving money was on your twenty twenty four list, you might be thinking it's too hard a hill to climb. But I can tell you of a one hundred percent guaranteed way to save money in twenty twenty four. Switch to Mint Mobile. Oh yeah, for sure. For a limited time, wireless plans for Mint Mobile are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, which if you know me, you know I love. <laughs> Text and data, and that's only $15 a month. That's right. You know, Forrest and I switched to Mint years ago when they first sponsored us. And we've talked about this before, but we've both saved literally thousands of dollars since then, especially me because I switched my whole family over to it. We were paying close to $225 a month for two phones back then. Now we're paying 15 bucks a month for both of those. And we added my son, so we're saving even more. Well, look, they tell me the economy is improving, and it probably is. But if you're anything like me, it takes a minute for that to catch up at home. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Because I, you know what? I hate those. Yeah, it's like, whoops, you're out of data. Don't worry, we got you. And then the bill comes and there's like a $35 overage charge. No. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. With Mint, you don't get those. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash AL. Cut That's your wireless. Mintmobile. I'm sorry. I jumped on your line. Go you ahead. ran up on me. Come on, man. All right, here we go. <laughs> I'm <are>. so excited. <laughs> That's mintmobile.com slash AL. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash AL. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Uh, how'd I do? Uh, yeah, you, you're doing good. I, I'm, I'm impressed. You're doing pretty good. <laughs> All right, Marie, it's your turn to jump in here. All right. Okay. Seriously. So what do you want me to do? Okay. I just, I want you to start with this first line right here. Start with that first line. Okay. This episode of Astonishing Legends podcast is brought to you by Wild Grain. Nice. Well done. Huh? Uh, folks, Wild Grain has sponsored us before, and man, am I glad they're back because it's freaking delicious. Wild Grain is the first ever bake-from-frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, and get this, this is important, no thawing required. Seriously? That much? That's good. That sounds great. But how is it really? Well, I, like I've said, they sponsored us before, and Forrest and I both loved it. I think we went on and on about their croissants before, which I had some this morning. Uh, but they also have amazing sourdough and the freshest pasta with clean ingredients you've ever had. And, and that's the thing about pasta. I'm kind of a carb junkie, I'll admit it. I don't drink sugary beverages, but I am a sucker for bread and pasta. So Wild Grain is right up my alley. But the thing I learned from Wild Grain is that you just don't realize how processed and mediocre the vast majority of the bread and pasta you get is, in this country anyway. It's really subpar. But Wild Grain uses 30-year-old sourdough starter for their sourdough, for example, and it is magnificent bread. All of their loaves are hand-shaped and slow-fermented for over 20 hours. Their bread helps you absorb more nutrients thanks to the lactic acid, and they keep your gut biome healthy thanks to prebiotics. Gut biomes. So what does that translate to? Well, I'll give you an example. The Wild Grain team just sent me a box with a plain sourdough loaf, croissants again, which I already ate, thank God, uh, giant chocolate chunk cookies, 
fresh fettuccine, fresh tonarelli, a cranberry pecan sourdough loaf, and a rosemary garlic sourdough loaf, which I, I got hungry just listing those. Anyway, usually when I eat bread, even just in a sandwich, I have a crash about an hour later. It's, it's like nap time, but wild grains bread doesn't do that to me at all. It's easier on the belly, if, if that makes sense. Same thing with their pasta. You just can't beat fresh pasta. But my favorite in this batch was probably the cranberry pecan sourdough. And you can honestly make anything on that list in just 25 minutes. Yep, you just preheat the oven or boil some water for the pasta. Pop the stuff in the oven or drop it in the water. You're supposed to do that very carefully because frozen pasta, you know. Uh, but it's pretty great. It makes fixing meals in my house a ton easier, especially with the pasta if I'm pressed for time. I'll just grab a sauce out of the pantry and have it over fresh wild grain pasta. Or if I've got a little more time, they have delicious recipes right on their website. All right, Philbrook, you sold me. How do I get it? Well, you can now fully customize your wild grain box so you can get any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries you like. And if you want a box of all bread, all pasta, or all pastries, you can have it. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com legends to start your subscription. I'm telling you folks, these croissants are unreal. So you heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash legends. Wait a second. This sounds great. I want some. Yeah, no, you're, you're not in this commercial, Rich. Oh, come on. That's wildgrain.com slash legends. Or you can use promo code legends at checkout. I'm Paul Workman from the American West History and Lore podcast. When I'm not rounding up your next Wild West tale, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Okay, so the first thing we need to do is go over the actual event before we dive into and sort of deconstruct who the people were, who the players were, and the, and the things surrounding it. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of tentacles on this. It reaches into different areas: the French Revolution and uh, these women going together, and how well did they know each other, which is something Marie knows about. But let's talk a little bit about what happened first, because we don't want to bury the lead, so we're going to try to avoid that, which is something we've been fighting for nine years now. Again, uh, <laughs> we're drawing on a book written by the original experiencers of this event. It's called An Adventure. It was first published by Macmillan & Co. in 1911, nine years after the story took place. Uh, There's also a more recent edition called Ghosts of the Triennial uh, by Aquarian Press that came out in 1988. There's other reprints too. There's a lot of people, I think, uh, I don't know if it's in public domain, but it seems like a lot of people published it. So it's it's not hard to find if you look it up, The Ghosts of Versailles, The Ghosts of the Triennial, and that's spelled T-R-I-A-N-O-N, like Trianon. On August 10th, 1901, two British women, Charlotte Ann Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain, or Jourdain, they're British ladies, took a self-guided tour around the Palace of Versailles in France. Now, they readily admit that they were not really students of French history, and although it's somewhat of a sacrilege, they found the Palace of Versailles itself, in a word, boring. <laughs> so <laughs> they were just like, ah, I don't know, whatever. So, but they... they They had a little bit of guilt, apparently, because they were like, well, we should have read up on this a little more. We should know more about this before we... I think everybody's done that. Everybody's gone to some place or like, I really should have looked into this a little more before I did this touristy thing because I don't know what I'm looking at. Right. But what's cool about this is the fact that they didn't know a lot about the history. Yes. Yeah. In retrospect, makes the story much better. That's true. That's true. So they decided after being bored with the palace that they were going to explore the gardens, which are expansive and amazing. And they also wanted to go back and visit Le Petit Trianon, which is a small manor house or chateau on the palace grounds 
built during the reign of Louis XV and later given to Marie Antoinette by Louis XVI when she was 19. Now, keep in mind, the total amount of land here is vast. This is 30,000 acres, makes it slightly larger than Disney World, or about 70% of the size of Washington, D.C., if you can believe that. So a little more than half the size of D.C. This is a big chunk of land. Yeah. Walking around there is quite an undertaking. It takes a minute to get around to different places. I, I think one of the points they make is that it's not impossible to get disoriented here. So when things got a little weird, it didn't necessarily set off a ton of alarm bells. They were, like you said, trying to get to the Petit Trianon. They got lost. I guess they became aware that they maybe weren't on the right path. They were three quarters of a mile away from the gardens. But I think they ended up going the long way around. Boy, did they. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) To the place they were trying to find. And then ultimately they found themselves going down in sort of a small alley lined with trees, which again is something you would expect to see in a place like this. Now, the interesting part is when they were walking down this alley, they experienced a change in their surroundings. I'm going to jump ahead just slightly and Mm -hmm. say that in the narrative that's laid out in the book, they make it very clear that while they were having this adventure, as they call it, they were chatting about their own lives. They were It's yes. like you're walking through a park talking to a friend, right? Right. And while they were doing that, they were also having feelings and noticing things and having various observations, but they weren't in the moment talking about what they were seeing or even how they were feeling. They were just continuing whatever conversation they were having. Right. Like they're on like parallel tracks of consciousness in a way, which everybody's done this. You're yeah. like, you know, you're talking to your friends and crazy things might be happening, but you're sort of keeping that on a, on a subconscious track a little bit. It's almost like they're driving together in a car, you know, and you're talking, you're looking at stuff, but you're having your own conversation. So anyway, so as they're walking, Moberly, the woman number one, she remembers seeing a woman shake a white cloth out of a window. Okay, I guess like almost like getting crumbs off it or something. And then Jourdain, woman number two, the other person, observed a farmhouse with an old plow in front of it. So they're just taking this in. Now, later it's going to turn out that each of them were seeing things that the other person was not seeing. The one thing they did have in common, though, was this growing feeling of oppressive dread and sadness. Now, they both were feeling this way. Neither knew why, neither knew the other person was feeling it. So this is stuff that comes out later when they start comparing notes. What's interesting about it is they're both feeling it, but they see different things. Or one person sees something and the other person sees something else. But as they start to walk further along, they actually both see two men who they initially referred to as palace gardeners because they had a wheelbarrow and some other gardening tools and were standing near them just off of the path. Moberly later describes them as being very dignified officials dressed in long grayish-green coats with small three-cornered hats, which were somewhat of the time and a a little bit almost overdressed for gardeners, but it was Versailles. They asked these men for direction, and the men told them that they could go straight to continue to find Petit Trianon, which is where their destination was. One thing of interest in having these discussions with the gardeners is that they asked them a few different times, or they tried to engage them 
And they always gave the same response back in the exact same tone or the exact same way. So it was almost like they were non-player characters in this yeah. whole event. And they didn't, NPCs. they didn't really, yeah, like it's like, it maybe it, it did strike them as slightly strange, but they didn't really realize that as a, at the time. And so they just continued on. Jourdain spotted an old stone cottage with a woman and a girl standing in the front door. And as it's quoted in the book, they both wore white kerchiefs tucked into the bodice. And the girl's dress, though she looked 13 or 14 only, was down to her ankles. The woman was passing a jug to the girl who wore a close white cap, end quote. So the girl was looking up at the woman with her empty hands outstretched. Uh, Jourdain couldn't tell if the woman was handing the jug to her or if the little girl had just given it back. But it felt very odd, like it was all of a sudden the um, the motion had stopped and they were just like sculptures just sitting there, um, like a tableau vivant. And we'll later on explain what that is for those of you out there who don't know and why it could be a clue depending on what you think is happening to these two women. So like we said, they're seeing different things here. Moberly didn't see the cottage or the two women, but reported feeling a change in the atmosphere when they were in that area. Again, describing everything as unnatural and lifeless. Now, at this time, they came upon a garden kiosk sitting in the woods, so dark they couldn't see past those woods at all. And again, they're still having these oppressive feelings. But more than just dark, Moberly described the woods as, quote, flat and lifeless like a wood worked in tapestry, end quote meaning a forest worked in tapestry. I'm clarifying because when you first hear it, you hear the phrase woodworking, not what we're saying here. The wood is the term for woods or a forest here. So she's saying the trees are flat and lifeless, and she described it as intensely still. Now, and this is something, Marie, you and I had talked about that goes back to Skinwalker Ranch, not the Skinwalker Ranch series we did, but when we had Linda Godfrey on, God rest her soul, she uh, passed away, but she came on and talked about her book, Monsters Among Us. And there was a story in there about folks who saw a wolf come out of the corn outside their house, and then it turned and it was one dimensional. It was a line. It was like a two dimensional line. And one of the things that Marie and I were talking about when we were researching this was like, that's what they're saying here. They're kind of saying these trees are flat, it, like they're in a tapestry. Mm-hmm. Like it's a set in a play or something. Yeah. Right, right, which is crazy. These other characters that they're meeting or that they're seeing, they're not having any kind of full interaction with them. Right. And so, again, that comes back to the whole NPC, the non-player character vibe. Now, so, and then there's the kiosk. A kiosk, to me, that's where you get a map of the mall or directions to a car park, but that's not what it means here. It's an older definition. I went to look it up. It's the American Heritage Dictionary. It talks about the origin of the word kiosk. comes from the Turkish word kiosk, which originally referred to a kind of open pavilion or summer house in Turkey and Persia, often built on a hexagonal or many-sided base. The upper classes of the Ottoman Empire would enjoy entertainments and view their gardens in the comfort of such buildings. So that's the kind of building they're talking about that they came up to here. You know, I wish that we had gotten the translated version, or I wish the book had been written in a way. I guess back then people, you could use French phrases and people in England would know what those phrases meant because they'd all been in and out of France enough times to know at least some of the vocabulary. I don't know any French at all. And when they would quote what people were saying or when they would use phrases, they didn't translate it. So I was just sort of like, well, okay, so somebody said something in French and then. (laughs) Well, I want to tell you, Rich, and I I can do this here because I have the book in front of me, but also there's an app on the iPhone called Translate that you never use. No, but it's so cool. It will look through your camera and identify text and change the language of the text. 
So you can just hold your camera up oh. to the text. And then okay. you say from French to English and you can, and that's how I decoded. I know I took French. I shouldn't have to do this, but that's how I decoded some of the French that was in the adventure yeah. or an adventure. Oh, it would have involved your phone. It would have involved <laughs> slightly more work. And of course that yes. was too much for me. So yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, but they didn't even with the French that they were hearing. And I think it was from the gardeners. And I think later on too, they didn't recognize it right away. Like they had trouble translating it. Right. So I have a feeling, even though you didn't translate it, it may not have been, maybe there was something about it that wasn't translatable or readily right. translatable. They said that it was accented. So it was almost, and I think they thought it was like an Austrian accent or something. So it was, right. there were two levels of translation that had to go on even in their minds. So anyway, so thank you, Scott, for explaining what the kiosk was. Yes, yes. The, Turkish origin of the word kiosk, a <laughs> pavilion of some kind. So more, a more, not a gazebo, but a more substantial structure that I guess you can't see through. So anyway, right. so they see this kiosk and next to it or near it, they see a guy wearing a cloak and a large shady hat. And they describe him as having a dark complexion with scars from smallpox and a horrid expression on his face. So clearly he is memorable. Okay. Now, later on, when they were comparing notes, they both saw this guy and they both experienced him the same way. They both were like, this guy is scary. Okay. But one of the scary things about him was that he didn't look at them. He was sort of looking through them. Yeah. So I think there was something strange about this encounter. Clearly he was not someone they wanted to go up and talk to and they right. didn't. But I think they also registered that he was perceiving them in a way that gave them a feeling of the uncanny, let's put it that way. Yes. And that's something that actually has come up before. Um, it reminded me a little bit of the eighth episode of our show, of Astonishing Legends, it, but which, which was literally the first one we ever recorded, uh, The Devil in the Diner, which is Paula Pell's story about being with a friend of hers and seeing a strange man in a diner in uptown Manhattan in the small hours of the morning. But both her and her friend, although they weren't saying it to each other, had a super visceral experience that they didn't know they were having until they kind of panicky left the restaurant and were outside talking about it. There's a lot of parallels there between that experience they had and what these women talk about, not just with the guy in the cloak by the kiosk, but some of the other stuff that's happening here that I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, and I think this makes perfect sense. Because when you're hearing the story secondhand, you're like, well, if you felt weird, why didn't you say something? But I don't yeah. think people do that. I think people, especially when it's more of a visceral, almost sensory reaction, it's not like, hey, that guy was raving in the street and he walked up to us and he was like, I thought he was going to take our money. It's not that. It's right. just, I've got a bad feeling and people aren't really comfortable articulating that. People usually don't go, you know what? I'm sorry. I've got a really weird, unexplainable feeling that I can't articulate, but I feel bad. Can we leave? Because you're right. afraid people are going to go, what's your problem? We're having a nice time. I'm waiting yeah. for a coffee refill. So the, the, the fact that you don't immediately speak your feelings, I think that's pretty normal. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Around this time, Moberly then heard someone running towards them. But when she looked around, she couldn't see anyone. So she could just hear the running, but there wasn't anyone there. Suddenly, as she turned back, there was someone there, as if appearing out of nowhere. This figure struck her as a gentleman, and he said to them breathlessly, and here I'm going to go with the French, Il ne faut pas passer par là, uh, something like that. 
Wow. Yeah. That's wow, which means uh, you must not go through there. And then he said, par ici, chercher la maison, which means, or this way, look for the house. So he starts to wave frantically for them to go towards the house. And then they turn to look at the house and he's gone. He's invisible. But they could hear footsteps running away. Again, they both remember this man, and Jourdain remembers that he wore buckled shoes. This is a pretty important clue later on for trying to understand the decade or the time period that he was dressed for. This is decidedly weird. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This I mean, is this, is the, this is the wagon train. This is the noise without the people or the thing. But in this case, then the thing does show up, then it vanishes, and then the sound remains. So this is a moment where you're sort of like, wait a second, isn't this maybe when you turn to the person next to you and go, hey, where did that dude go? But I assume, my feeling was when I read this, that the weird sort of feeling of oppression and unreality was still kind of rushing over them. And maybe Mm -hmm. even though this was happening, they themselves were thinking, okay, I must have been distracted for a moment. And when I turned back, they were already gone. This is clearly my problem. Well, yeah, and I think that they maybe were still thrown trying to understand what he was saying. Because again, he comes running up, they perceive him. He says this, you know, don't go this way, go this way towards the house, and then is gone again. And I'm thinking that, you know, it's like you said, that they're just thrown. They still have this weird feeling around them. And so they're just sort of trying to get to the next save point (laughs) to keep the game metaphor going. But it's just, it feels like they're almost on automatic in some ways. Well, and I just love like, cherchez la maison. It's like, look for the house, look for the house. Talk about uncanny. There's something uncanny about that Mm -hmm. instruction. It's like, we know why you're here. All this other stuff that's happening, you got to watch out for these. This is, you know, it's Alice in Wonderland situation. And you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way, cherchez la maison. And when I think about that, I did think about Alice in Wonderland. The funny thing is that Macmillan and company that published this book also published Lewis Carroll. That's one of the things that put them on the map, along with Rudyard Kipling. And yeah, because I looked up the publisher. So I thought that was pretty Mm. interesting. And this has that vibe a little bit of of them being in Wonderland, which I did have to wonder about Mm -hmm. once I put all that together, because, you know, these different characters coming and going and all of that stuff, there is a Lewis Carroll vibe to it in a way. Yeah, I agree. And I I think it's carried throughout. So after they are told, you know, again, by this, this running figure to look for the house, they start on their way and they cross a bridge where they, it's like a little footbridge and they can hear running water. But when they look down, they don't see where the water is coming from. So they don't see any little creek or anything like that. So they're just crossing this bridge. And again, it's sort of this uncanny thing where you're hearing something, you're looking down for it, and it's, it's just not there. I've had this experience. There's a, a bike path that um, I ride up in Ventura. It goes from the Ventura Beach all the way up to Ojai, about 15 miles north, and mm. comes back. And yeah, okay, I, I I do a lot of biking. It's cool. Hey, it's no big deal. A 30-mile bike ride. Don't worry about it. You guys, quit <laughs> yeah, yeah. looking at me like I'm a yeah, big athlete. I'm riding it's up no to Ojai. Yeah. But when you're going up, there's a couple of different bridges, and there's a couple of different areas on this bike trail where you can hear water. But when you look down, the water is not going under the bridge at that moment. And I only bring it up because after the rains that happened earlier in the year, about a year ago, for the first time, I saw the water going under the bridge. And that's when I realized, oh, this is for when 
there's like a flood practically. That's when it finally makes its way so that this bridge becomes useful. But up until now, I could only hear the water and now I can hear and see the water. So again, okay, this is not the kind of thing where you necessarily stop everything and go, wait a second, something crazy is happening. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think that there's like a a natural assumption of like, that this is a normal event. Some of this has got to be a normal event because if it's not a normal event, what else could it be? And the other thing is that the landscape here is not real extreme and it's also super manipulated. They're regularly moving the ponds around, moving the trees, changing things. I mean, not regularly, every couple of decades, but when something's hundreds of years old, that's regularly. But like they're, they are manipulating the landscape here. But, you know, we're not looking at like a deep ravine necessarily or anything like that. And it, what happens is, you know, the king comes along is like, I don't like that hill. Move it over there. You know, there's so there's some <laughs> things happening. <laughs> but that's uh, true. Sorry, I that's true. I, when <laughs> we moved into the house, we um, there was a swimming pool and uh, we had it moved five feet over. Yeah. Yeah. So, there you go. Yeah. yeah but and now it's nine. But I'm thinking yes. of actually having it moved back. <laughs> Finally, the two women, they reached the Le Petit uh, Trianon where Moberly sees a woman sketching on the grass in front of the chateau. We say chateau, but it is actually a pretty, I mean, I, I would call that more than a chateau. That's like a very, it looks yeah. like a mansion. Yeah, for us. Good for size mansion. It's a mansion. Yeah, exactly. So they see some of uh, this woman. She's set up. They thought that she was sketching because she was sitting on a camp stool and holding a piece of paper out in front of her as if she was looking and evaluating at her own drawing. Moberly later on will give a detailed description of the woman and would later claim that this woman that they saw was Marie Antoinette. Jourdain, however, claims that she never saw the sketching woman at all. So again, it's this weird juxtaposition of somebody seeing something, somebody hearing something, and the other person not experiencing that. That is one of the biggest creepy things to me about this. And kind of, again, you can see where later on authors will pick that up like a specialized haunting and i know that's something that you and Forrest have gone into quite a bit is like you, you can experience something and no one else is hearing or seeing it that's an important thing because a lot of people especially at that time were saying well the reason that their stories don't jibe is because they're making it up or they're changing their details later down the road but what we know from modern hauntings is that a lot of times people are hearing, and we even have electronic evidence of this, where people are hearing EVPs that other people in the room did not hear, but one person heard it and it's on one of the devices, but another person who was right there didn't hear it. So we actually have proof that this can happen. That explanation never holds water for me. If you were making the story up, they would both be experiencing the same thing. The fact right. that some of them saw one thing or one of them yeah. saw something and the other one didn't, but the other one saw something else actually works against our our natural credibility listening to a story because it makes it even more impossible. It's like, well, wait a second. You were seeing this. You were seeing that. And it doesn't make any sense. If you wanted to convince someone, you would go, okay, we both walked in. We both experienced this. We back each other up. I'm her witness. She's my witness. Yeah, right. that, that one doesn't fly for me. Yeah. It's what makes it even more uncanny and unsettling that something could pick you to hear or to see it and no one else could see it. To me, that's like, that is, uh, that's definitely uncanny and unsettling. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Uh, Thank you, Rich. Very well done. I've got one job. I'm not going to screw it up. All right. Well, there's still time. You're, but you're doing great, man. Folks, if you've been listening to us for a while now, which a lot of you apparently have, 
then you know that AstonishingLegends.com has been a Squarespace website nearly since we started over nine years ago. Uh, when they first sponsored us, they comped us a year of service, and after that, it was on our dime, and we're still with them. I think that's the best evidence of how great we think Squarespace is. So Astonishing Legends has been on Squarespace for eight years now? Yep. We've never seen another service that can compare to what they do for us. And, and I get the feeling we're going to need to be building another website here pretty soon for a new show on the Astonishing Legends Network, and you better believe Squarespace is going to be the home for that one, too. Uh, I think I know what you're talking about, you sly dog. Yes, I do. I mean, you're, you're about ready to launch, right? Yes, my podcast will be coming out in a little over two months. All right. See, here's what's so cool. Squarespace has a feature called Fluid Engine. This is the coolest thing ever. It's a next-generation website design system. It's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity with it. You simply start with a best-in-class website template and customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or mobile. There are limitless possibilities, and it's built in and ready to go on any new Squarespace site. Okay, so this all sounds like technical stuff to me, and I'm excited about my website, but I don't know how to do any of this stuff. This sounds pretty cool. Yeah, well, that's the great thing about it. It makes it easy for you to use and easy for anyone to do. It used to be if you wanted to build a website, you had to know a little bit about how to write code. Squarespace has taken all that and banished it to the nether region. So that's the great thing about it. And by the way, they also have analytics, which is great, especially for you with starting out with a new website, because you want to know when people are coming to the website, what they're into, what's bringing them back, and, and what are the things they're clicking on the most. Nothing is more important than that when you're starting out figuring out that discoverability and what you can do to draw more people in. And the analytics that Squarespace has built in can help you build a marketing strategy based on top keywords or your most popular content. So you know me, okay, I'm a big fan of books. There's going to be books involved. Can I build in links so people can find the books I like through my Squarespace website? Absolutely. The website templates are flexible with designs for every category and use case. You can customize your look, update content, and add any feature you want to fit your needs. In fact, we have links to books built into each dedicated episode page on Astonishing Legends right now. And we also have other customizable features like built-in maps that show the area we were talking about and embedded players. So you can listen to podcasts right there on the website if you want. We can do that on your page as well. Okay, this is all sounding really cool. Where do I sign up? Just head over to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com legends to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and use the code legends at checkout. Okay, so squarespace.com for the free trial. And then when I want to launch my website, squarespace.com legends, that'll get me 10% off. That's exactly right. Please use a special URL so they'll know that we sent you. Nice. Hello, Legenders. This is Chris Williamson. And when I'm not chasing Earhart, I'm listening to my buddies Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess on Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. So they eventually walked around the house looking for an entrance, and then they encountered another person. This was a young man who saw them. They interacted with this guy, and he told them the entrance to the house was around by the, oh my God, Scott, what is it? How do you pronounce it? Uh, honneur, which is, uh, would be the heart of honor literally translated, but it basically, I think means courtyard. Okay. Oh, thank God you're here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're for those five years, man. Yeah, those five those years, five years stuck with you well. For the first time. Uh, okay. So, uh, Jordan says that she thinks that he appeared to be mocking them about how to get into the chateau, which is a little weird. Like, I don't know if the assumption is they should already know yeah. how to get in. Yeah. Or they were they were peasants. Or yeah, maybe they didn't belong and there. And they didn't know. Yeah. But again, just looking at the fact of it, 
it's almost like, well, if somehow they went back in time, mm-hmm. wouldn't this person be surprised to see them? But this person was not. He sort of made fun of them. Okay. Right, right. They get directed to go around the front. They go around the front. They both said when they got around the front, they had to wait for a wedding party that was arriving. So now, now there's an entire wedding party. Yes. The wedding party goes in, they go in after, mm-hmm. and they had a brief look around the rooms before leaving and then getting into a carriage that was available to begin their journey home. Now, the carriage was a real thing. Yeah, right? that was a normal present day carriage. Yeah, that took them out of there because they needed to get the train. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it's like the, mm-hmm. it's like the episodes you guys do about, you know, the, the, the hitchhiker getting into the ghost car. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but this wasn't that. They got into a real thing. Yeah. So uh, during the last moments of their time at Le Petit Trianon, they continued to both have an oppressive feeling of dread, but they kept this experience to themselves for a week until later, Moberly asked Jourdain if she thought the Petit Trianon was haunted. And both agreed at that time that their experience was paranormal. And the interesting thing about this, about them not talking to each other for a week about it, is this comes back to something that Forrest and I have talked about a billion times in paranormal apathy and just sort of not really being aware of the weirdness or maybe almost like, it's almost like part of your mind is in shock about it and it doesn't accept it until later. I don't think it's that unusual that they didn't talk about it till later because I don't think they knew what was Mm -hmm. happening. Was it a week or was it longer? I thought it was three months. That was the first time they spoke of it was a week. I looked this up too, Marie, because the same thing, I thought the same thing. The first time that they spoke about it, about whether it was haunted or not, was a week. But they didn't really start to drill down on it until several months later, until what happened. Yeah. So wasn't one of them writing a letter? Yes. Yes. And thinking about it. So this is great also because it speaks to the time. Yeah. A few days later, one of them is sitting down to write to someone about going there and they're thinking back and they're trying to relate what it was like. And this is how people communicated when they went on vacation. You would write a postcard or a letter and you want to say, hey, it was great. We had the greatest time. It was so beautiful. But when they were really trying to recall how they felt, it was not beautiful and it was not great. It was friggin' weird. Yeah, it was weird, right? exactly, yeah. yeah. Which is what led to the conversation. Versailles was dull, and then just yeah. And then, <laughs> I felt horrible. Wait, did you feel horrible? Wait, did, did it seem eerie and scary and oppressive? Yeah. And then they have this original conversation. Now, you wonder about reports of time slips now. Again, it's that thing people talk about. You've got a phone with you. If you see Bigfoot, if you see a ghost, if you see a UFO, you take a picture of it. Now, when people travel, if they went to Versailles, they'd be doing selfies with that right. weird guy who came out of the house. Right, right. <laughs> you know, there'd yeah. be an Instagram spot, you know? Yeah. And who knows what you'd get? So there is something that makes me wonder if an immersive time slip, and this is one of the most immersive I've ever heard about. Yeah. That not only went on for a long time, yeah. but then a few months later, it happened again. Yeah. But yeah, it's the kind of experience that could only be experienced then. Now, I'm not so sure. They did later write separate accounts of their adventure, and they researched the history of the Petit Trianon, and they discovered that on August 10th, 1792, 109 years to the day prior to their outing, the Tuileries Palace in Paris was surrounded and the king's guard was killed. 
That was the beginning of, well, not the actual, but the one of the beginnings of the French Revolution. Six weeks later, the monarchy ceased to exist. Moberly and Jourdain concluded that one of the men they had seen, the swarthy man with the pockmarked face and the dark cloak, was Comte de Baudray, a sycophant to Marie Antoinette, who trusted him, but apparently with disdain, because he was a social climber and part of a cabal trying to worm their way into prominent positions in the royal household. However, at some point, the count persuaded Antoinette to convince King Louis XVI, her husband, to allow the satirical comedy, satirical political comedy, The Marriage of Figaro, to be performed in public. Now, the catch here being this play mocks French society, the monarchy, and the government. So Louis XVI was so freaked out by it that he had it censored with the text rewritten to have a bunch of it, uh, like all the action parts take place in Spain. And the censors would not approve a public performance of it, but the king relented, possibly at the behest of Marie Antoinette, probably being prodded to let it run by the Count of Rodray. It had 68 consecutive performances and was the highest grossing play in the 18th century. George Danton, one of the leaders of the French Revolution, said that the play, quote, killed off the nobility, end quote. It is politically divisive, and there are those who would say that the performance of it was a major instigating movement in the French Revolution. So in a way, the Count, he was born on one of the island colonies, and he was just generally kind of distrusted, but also close to Marie Antoinette. And what I read about him in the research was that he was part of like what they said, literally the word was cabal of people who were all just trying to part of the entourage, right? Just trying to climb up into the court, the court and enjoy all the spoils therein. And he was one of the ones that when the revolution started, he fled the country on horseback. He booked it out. It's interesting that they, saw him and he is sort of the precursor to what would bring down the monarchy. He was one of the reasons that if it's true, like she listened to him and changed the King's mind, even though they tried to make it about Spain, which is kind of funny as well. (laughs) They tried to shift the narrative and that is the instigator, one of the instigators for the revolution. And he's who they see first or predominantly in the kiosk, in the dark hat and the dark coat. That's interesting. I did not know that that was, I knew that it was a political hot button, but I did not uh, read further to hear that it was the, um, what lit the powder keg for it. You know, in the big picture, looking back at this first chain of events, you have these two ladies who had gone there, they experienced all of these strange happenings. People are coming and going. They're they're hearing sounds, but not seeing things. They're seeing things and not hearing stuff. They're, they're seeing different stuff. It's a varied experience for both of them. All right. So that that's the crux of the primary event, the instigating event, the one that everyone talks about in one of the most famous time slip stories in modern human history. But that's not the end of it though, right? Right. No, because, and this is what to me makes it unprecedented, is that a few months later, after they've sort of discussed this and realized, oh, wait a second, we were seeing different things. We both felt weird. Something was strange. Now, one of them, I believe it was, I think it was Moberly has now gone back to England. And Jourdain is a teacher, a young woman who's teaching, and she has some time off over the winter break. So she decides to go back. So on January 2nd, the first day it's open to the public, she goes back to Versailles And it happens again. She has really weird experiences that geographically don't match up to what the place actually is. 
And it's only on a third visit that happens, I think, in 1904. I mean, it's way down the line. They both go back and realize, oh, okay, the first time we went, things were f***ed up. The second time, the one lady went back, equally f***ed. And then the third time they go back and realize, okay, we were seeing things that simply didn't exist here and should not never have existed. Why, why do you have a look of glee on your face every time you drop an F-bomb? <laughs> I know. The more, the more disconcerted you became, the funnier it was. <laughs> I know. It, the first thing was you could just tell the face. He was like, <sighs> thank God I don't have to worry about the FCC. So again, a couple of years later, they both go back and they discover that their first two visits, first together and then... Uh, the second lady separately, they were seeing things that should not have been there and that were not there, that could not physically have been there. But now is when they begin an investigation to see how what they saw lines up with the reality of what the place looked like at the time they were visiting and then what it had looked like at different points in the past, trying to find moments where Wait, was there ever a house there? Were there ever woods in that other place? How did the gardeners dress a hundred years ago? And because it is the Palace of Versailles, there was tons of documentation, tons of maps, tons of journals and ledgers that indicated exactly how the gardeners dressed, when performances were held. Because one of the things people have said is, well, it sounds like they wandered onto a stage set and people were in costume and they were there just to sort of lend authenticity to your Versailles experience. Like, like what is it, Williamsburg or something in Virginia? Have you guys been there? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I thought about. Because you go and you tour and then all the people come out in the period garb and they're churning butter and whatever. Right. And yes. This way to ye Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, they're making candles and blowing yeah. glass. And, you know, your cell phone rings and they're like, what bird is that? <laughs> oh, zounds. Zounds. In those situations, the performers have a way of interacting. And usually it involves providing information because that's why you're there. So they'll just start talking about well, you know, here's what I do in the village. My job is this, and it's right. active during these months. And they start, they go into their spiel, right. right? So people have suggested that that's what they, they stumbled into something along those lines. Well, guess what? It's the freaking Palace of Versailles. They have a very detailed schedule of when they do performances, when they do concerts, when they have parties, when they host social activities or that's reenactments, right. and none of it lines up. So they spend the next pretty much 10 years, you know, or from 1904 to 1910, doing research, trying to line up what they saw with different moments in history to see if they can converge on a single date. And I think what's interesting is that you bring up like they spend the next 10 years. So this whole thing, since it first started, it's been going on, like closing in on 16 years. But what I think is also really relevant for this story is when they took this trip to Versailles, they didn't really know one another. Yeah. What is the, what, so what's the background on these two, Marie? Because I know you know more about it than I do. So Moberly was the headmistress principal for, I believe it's St. Hugh's College at Oxford. And so 
her job was to oversee the College of Young Women. And this was, again, early 1900s. It wasn't a scholastic or a academic posting. It was more like she came from a good family. She had a good reputation. And she basically was like a house mother to what started off, I think it was just like four women when it started, but it grew from there. So really when you're, again, Victorian uh, Victorian England, you're sending your daughter away to college, which is almost an unforeseen thing at that time. Unmarried, unchaperoned, a young lady would be under a, a dormitory or living in a house or college. And this woman, Moberly, had all of this responsibility and sort of all of this authority, but like she had to be from a good family and she had to have a lot of trust and very reputable, right? Like you can't go around telling ghost stories or having people doubt your word and still be the head right. of this college. So at this time, they were looking for a I guess it was like a vice principal, and they recommended Jourdain, who was in France. And so she goes out to visit her, and as a way of getting to know one another, they do kind of France's greatest hits, right? So they'll go to all the different locations in France, and they both said that, this is kind of where I would start to kind of maybe question it a little bit, is they didn't have much education or much knowledge about right. France or these these monuments or history. Jourdain had relocated to France, was running sort of a finishing school in France, and was a Francophile. So she was very much into French culture, but the details of Versailles probably maybe were not as well known to her. She goes to visit her, and this is one of the trips they take. So they don't really know one another. So combined with like all of the weirdness that's happening to them, and why didn't they say something to one another at the time, they don't really know one another, right? So it's sort of like somebody that you've met that you work with, that you may work with. It's sort of like a job interview. And you're trying to, you know, just trying to feel one another out, say, hey, is this is this going to be or is a good culture fit, et cetera? And you have something weird happen. It may not be something that you just kind of decide to disclose right, right away. So these women were, were saying they were in their 20s? Jordan was 16 years older than Moberly. Moberly was, I want to say, in her th- 30s, maybe I got, we'll have to look it up. Um, Jourdain had actually gone and had a college education and graduated with a history major. Moberly was born in 1846 and uh, Jourdain was born in 1863. So at the time this first event happened, Moberly was 55. And oh. um, <laughs> yeah, and then uh, Jourdain was 38, yeah. 55 and 38 when it happened. Important to point out that they were also considered spinsters, right. right? They are now too old to get married and to have children. And this was a reputable avenue was to be a teacher or to run a finishing school in France or to be sort of the headmistress or the principal of a women's college. For our listeners who might not be familiar with that term, like what, what exactly does a spinster mean back then? It's a great word. So basically, <laughs> you are too old to be married and you're too old to bear children. So you don't really, there's not a lot to right. do with you at that point. Like you don't have a lot of options. You can't just crawl under the house and die like the dog or the cat. <laughs> you know, you're, they have to do something with you. And you're not a widow, right? You're not a widow. So you're just sort of, you know, the, the classic tropes are there just a burden. 
They're just very finicky and kind of persnickety. But Moberly, like I said, did not, even though she was the principal of this college, she did not have an education. Even at that time, women who were enrolled in that school in Oxford couldn't attend classes or may not be able to attend classes because the professors, it was up to their discretion if they wanted them to come in and join the class. If they did join the class, they had to sit way far back, sort of in the, the nosebleed seats, and they could be basically overruled or booed by the male students. So I think it's sort of, again, like a, the spinster comes in as almost a social cliche for what do you call someone who didn't fit a stereotype at that time or who didn't fit a normal, what is a normal wife, a normal mother, a normal Victorian woman at that time. And it's unmarried, could be educated, but was somebody who didn't have a lot of, a lot of, I would say, agency or autonomy. And someone who really, you know, surprisingly, normally would not be listened to in relaying this type of story, which is something we'll, we'll get into, you know, probably in part right. two. Well, I was going to say what you're talking about is maybe what, you know, how society felt, but that had no reflection on who they actually were as people or what their individual experience was. It sounded like they, right. they were both working and they were respected in their fields and they were, you know, went on vacations. Mm-hmm. And later when they were doing their investigation, people were happy to speak with them. So, you know, Spinster always brings up like unfortunate associations in our mind because of, you know, books and, you know, fairy tales and things Mm -hmm. like that. But it sounds like these two women were part of society. They were flourishing in their given careers and they were, they had enough money to go on vacation and they were, they were having a good time. Mm -hmm. Again, I do find it interesting that they did not have, they were not showing up at Versailles, you know, having read tons of books. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I want to see this and I want to see this. They were kind of like, mm-hmm. look, we're in France. Like you said, we're, we're sort of crossing things off our list. We don't even know if we want to go to Versailles. It's kind of far flung. Couldn't we just hang around and go to a cafe and eat croissants? And they end up going to this place. I mean, I know this feeling. I think anyone who's been on vacation knows this feeling. You're like, well, we're here. So we're supposed to go see the thing and yeah. listen to the pre-recorded. It's like mm-hmm. when I go to San Francisco, there's always someone who wants to go to Alcatraz. And I'm like, yeah. we've been to Alcatraz a million times. No, no, <laughs> got to go to Alcatraz. Take the boat to Alcatraz, get off, take yeah. the tour, put on the I went to London the- with my family and every everybody's like, did y'all go on the eye? It's like, no, we, we didn't go on the eye. <laughs> the eye. <laughs> All the things you're supposed to do. And the joke, of course, is if you live in New York, you've never gone to the Statue of Liberty. Right. Why would you? You live there. It's just a thing. You're going to work. Yeah. So (laughs) they were in tourist mode. They're trying to have a good time. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, well, all right, we're here. Mm -hmm. Let's go look at this place. Oh, it's a little bit cloudy today. You know, the atmosphere is a little close. They were just trying to get through their vacation. Yeah. And that's the background mentally and emotionally when this stuff occurs that for them, it takes them a while to even realize wait, were we, the stuff we saw, was that part of Versailles? Like, I don't know, maybe, I, I don't know. And then when they looked into it, they discovered, no, what they were seeing was not part of 1901 Versailles. Did you just mansplain uh, Spinster to me? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just... <laughs> no, just checking, just checking. And what's the old, but, but uh, the unmarried guy is the eligible old bachelor. 
Yeah, right. Isn't that it? It's a bachelor. He's a bachelor. No, I, I agree. And I, I, I also think that, again, there was the, kind of the idea of the job interview and that they didn't know one another, right? So they're getting to know one another. There must have been some kind of pressure in that as well, because this is going to maybe be her future employer. Right. Um, and she wants, I, I feel like she wanted Moberly to be impressed by France as well and was maybe playing that down a little bit. But yeah, they were just sort of checking off the boxes right. and going to the greatest hits. And I do love the fact that they said, we didn't think it was that great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're kind of bored. In other words, these were not friends from way back. Which makes what happens next even more amazing. I can't remember what the status is, yeah. what year, what thing happened, but I do know from learning a little bit about the French Revolution for these two episodes that after the French Revolution, all of the furniture, everything was auctioned over the course of a year that was in there. So uh, in 1901, yeah. it, I don't know, it might have been a lot of empty rooms. There's museums in different parts of it now, but at the time, the palace might have been sort of empty. I don't know. Well, Napoleon, <laughs> but it, Napoleon won. They rebought a lot of the stuff. Oh, that's right. Napoleon yeah. fixed he he fixed it back up, right? But it but they, they didn't get it all back, did they? I mean, yeah. they spent a year scattering it. I'm sure that like there's a lot of real estate there. To there's a lot of. I mean, they had a whole room just for silverware. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that was in the Petit Trianon, but I mean, the palace the, the itself. Petit too. Trianon, yeah, yeah, it's like you have an entire room for silverware, so it might be hard to yeah. you know rebuild that from scratch. You know how I'm always bringing in the other books. So I've yeah. got this one here, The Encyclopedia mm. of Ghosts and Spirits by John oh, nice. and Ann Spencer. Yes. It's a paperback I've had for 25 years. Okay. But I recall that there was a, a chapter about time slips. So okay. preparing for the episode, I'm like, oh, let me go check out the book. And they've got a chapter where there's, you know, paragraph long, there's maybe 20 of them, famous time slips from different uh, places. But listen to this. So this is the very first one that is mentioned. An artist at Versailles. And I'm like, wait a second, is this the story? Yeah. Well, it turns out it's not. This is a time slip at Versailles after World War II. Oh, wow. So now we're okay. almost you know, 40, 45 years after what they're talking about. Yeah. Okay, so the palace had been damaged in the war. And according to this story there was renovation and repairs going on, trying to get it back to sort of a way where people could come and visit it and it would look pretty nice. Okay, so there was an artist there. The assignment was to go to the undamaged rooms and make sketches so that they could then use those as a basis for redecorating and restoring the places and rooms that had been damaged. So according to this book, the artist entered a stateroom, which he described as most beautifully furnished and hung with tapestry. The windows were draped with silks, and one of the chairs in the room was described as gilded. It was not until he left the room and was outside in the grounds that he realized that he had been in that room every night for the past week, and that it had always been totally bare, no tapestries, curtains, or furniture. So as he was wandering around, he wandered into this room and it was only when he left that he was like, wait, I've been in that exact room, except it was very different. So what did he experience? Was he seeing a vision of the room's past? How far in the past? Just before it was destroyed in the war 
or going back even further. So Versailles has many, many ghost stories. We're covering one, but apparently it's kind of like you said, Scott, it's like Gettysburg. You go there and you've got, you've got an okay chance of experiencing something. Right. And I want to go there now. It sounded like they, they started casually talking about the event to some people. Then they decided, you know what, let's stop talking about it. Let's go step by step through what we saw and see if we can figure it out. And then they did what was an impressive investigation. Like it was not casual and it took a long time. And, and yes. they went through libraries and, and you know museums. Like they had to do some real archival research to figure out what they had seen and when it could have been yeah. represented in reality at Versailles. And then I do like later in the book how they say that they would meet people who would then tell back to them part of their own story. Right. Well, we heard that someone saw this, this, and this, and they're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that was us. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like, you know, the the snake eating its own tail, right? So they they get the people laying their experience back to them. But then also it's like, well, how much of that investigation was real investigation and how much of it started to get more fanciful. Cause they ended, there's certain things in there where they're finding stuff up chimneys. They're finding maps up chimneys. Like it gets like, and even sort of their adamance toward it is so imaginative and impressive that it's hard to tell the difference between or to draw the distinction between the plausible and like where maybe they just got, I hate to say carried away, but where they just got, where it became more of a fiction. Yeah. It feels like it was one thing, and then it just sort of almost became something else. Are you saying there's, there's parts of their investigation that to you felt like they're just making this up? They didn't really find that information that backs that up? It feels like they started it, and it, there, there's rigor around it, and they're like, they're finding stuff. And then at a certain point, they start to find more specific stuff, and it almost becomes confirmation bias. Like, they start to look... They maybe are starting to influence what they're what they're reading or what is coming back to them. And then at the end, there is this one episode where they find a map and the map is hidden in a chimney. And that I was like, hmm, that's far out there. But it's not that I don't think that a portion of their research wasn't accurate. I think it was. I think that there was something else going on with it at a certain point as well. The reason they started the research was because whatever the paranormal group was said, we can't publish this. We can't hold you to this because or talk about this because there's not enough facts. So I love the fact that they went and did the research, but I don't know. I feel like there is a certain point that they started to become kind of an echo chamber for some of the stuff as well. Right. The book itself was a hit. It was well read and they wanted, and they definitely had a, a good seller on their hands and it would have done oh so much better if I think if they were men. <laughs> so they were met with a lot of skepticism. They used pen names in writing the book, so they didn't disclose who they were, but they definitely were met with a lot of skepticism. There was no way that these two women could have had this experience. They must have imagined it. It must have been. There was a lot of different reasons that they felt that could explain it away. Each time um, Moberly and Jourdain went back and kind of refortified themselves with more research and answered those questions. And in later editions, even would come out and say, well, okay, our critics, our skeptics have asked all these questions. We are now going to 
have an entire appendix of our answers to them. So they were very thorough on that, but there was still a huge amount of skepticism towards them. And the question is, when they were doing this research, were they trying to disprove what they saw or bolster their case for what they saw? And and there have been arguments going in both directions because you're doing the same research. So it's a little bit hard to, I mean, outside of the rhetoric that they use when they describe their findings, to know, you know, to parse exactly the motivation that they had as they went about it. For me, reading the book, it felt very straightforward. They were saying, okay, here's what we saw. Here's our research. Here's what the research says. It doesn't feel like they ever triangulated a single day, a single event. Like it never, as far as I could tell from the book, they never landed on, okay, here's our theory. It was this day, all the things match up, and it was because this was a big day. And so that's why everything was this one day. Right. They were sort of like, well, look, some of the things we saw correspond to these few years. Other things match other time periods. So we can't say we literally stepped into a memory of a single afternoon in the life of someone who lived there. The same holds true for the skeptics. Their skeptics can't disprove all of the research or all the findings either. So they're sort of left with a lot of questions. The skeptics say what they always say, which is, this is anecdotal. You're hearing a story told by two people about what they saw. Now, their research, anyone can do the research and follow in their footsteps and look at those same maps and books, but none of it proves that on the day they visited there, they actually had that experience. And if they had that experience, was it a legitimate supernatural experience or were they tired? Had they had too much wine at lunch? Things like that. That's when I normally have those experiences. When you've had too much wine at lunch. Or breakfast. Well, there is a lot more to this story and a lot more to dig into. I actually enjoyed, I think really for the first time, and I have a college degree, but it was the first time I was learning about the French Revolution in detail for this particular series. Understanding how the how it actually unfolded and the disposition of uh, of Louis the Sixteenth and how they got moved around and taken off the property. And then just this idea that the women were seeing shades of that unfolding. And the, the other thing that I thought was interesting too was that in their research, some of the theories they had were very sophisticated theories when it comes to trying to figure out the paranormal. They were putting forth ideas that people are only just now talking about that are almost quantum in nature. These ideas of, of memories and, and time and space kind of folding in on itself and being part of that, even though, as you just said, Rich, is this the right day, this exact day? And, and that doesn't necessarily really matter. It's, it's something that Forrest and I had brought up when we were talking about the real house where the conjuring took place of folks saying, well, this ghost couldn't have been on this at this house because it lived up the street. And it's like, oh, that's the rule. The rule is it's, <laughs> right. it lived up the street. So then then there's no ghost. And those are those kinds of suggestions that are broader and wider that they're making about, could this have been this? Could this have been that? That's what, what I think is one of the most fascinating things about this case. Yeah. And it also speaks to the nature of memory. Yes. If I talk about a memory that you and I shared, Scott, 
some place we went or something we did, we may have slightly different stories and remember them different ways. And those memories change over time. So to say that they stepped in to someone's memory of an event, which is why they felt it emotionally, even that doesn't get you as far as you'd like. Right. I agree. Well, folks, that's going to wrap up our initial discussion here on the Ghosts of Versailles or the Ghosts of the Trianon or Le Petit Trianon. There's all fun words to say. That's the most French I've gotten to use since I took it a long time ago. What we're going to do when we come back for part two is talk a little bit more about who these non-player characters might have been and what the save points might have represented and this encounter that these ladies had and all all the research that they did and how it was received. Rich and Marie, I want to thank you so much for stepping in this week and uh, filling in for Mr. Burgess while he's away. And um, I hope you guys will come back next week so we can uh, dive deeper into this. Absolutely. My pleasure. This was fun. That's going to wrap up part one of our special two-part series on the Ghosts of Versailles. A very special thanks to our guest hosts, Richard Haddam and Marie Mayhew. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. With Forrest out of town at the moment, Tess and I have free reign over the junk drawer, so Patreon members keep an eye out for a new one of those in the meantime. And if you haven't already, find and subscribe to the other two shows from the Astonishing Legends Network, Scared All the Time and the Midnight Library, wherever you get your podcasts. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. My name's Spelling. Hi, I'm Chris Williamson. P-A-U-L. Hi, I'm Dan. W-O-R-K. And I give permission to Astonishing Legends. M-A-N. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Paul Workman. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.